episode 353, What You Need to Know About Specialty Pharmacy Formularies and Rebating. Today, I speak with Pramod John. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This episode is probably a 400-level class in specialty pharmacy rebating. If you want, like, a 45-minute conversation on rebates in all their glory, go back and listen to the conversation with Chris Sloan, Encore episode 216, link in the show notes. But if you're still with me, what's going to follow is about a 8-minute overview of pharmaceutical rebating, just to make sure we're all on the same page before we get into the show itself. So if you know all there is to know about pharmaceutical rebating, you can jump ahead about eight minutes and get to the part where I talk with Promode John. Okay, so the pharmaceutical rebate short version is this. Well, before I actually get into the rebate short version, let's just go through a few background points to keep us all on the same page. Okay, pharmaceutical benefit managers, PBMs talk long and loud and often about how they put drugs on formulary, on their formularies based on their clinical attributes. And who knows, I'd assume that there's probably meetings about clinical outcomes. But that said, it's kind of funny how the top drugs on most formularies are the ones where the PBM makes the most money. Could be coincidence, who am I to say? Go ahead and listen to PBM quarterly earnings calls. They are a revelation. So this has to do with the crazy rebate thing that we've got going on in this country. How it works is as such. Let's say a drug costs $100. PBM says to pharma company, well, if we put you on our formulary, then sure, fine. We'll buy it for $100, this drug. But you, pharma company, will then give us a $20 rebate. You're going to give us $20 back in a rebate for every drug, for every unit that goes through our PBM. That's one of your options, pharma company. And if you give us this rebate, then you'll be one of however many on our formulary in your therapeutic category. So paying this will ensure that we will limit the number of options that are available to patients so your volume can go up, your market share can go up. Or here's another option that the PBM sometimes offers pharma, and maybe it's the only option that they offer pharma in some cases. PBM says, give us a $30 rebate, and then we'll give you an exclusive. There will, we promise, be no other drugs on our formulary in your same therapeutic category. You will be the only drug that we allow for whatever condition or that we'll pay for for whatever condition. You'll get all of our business, except unless somebody does an arduous appeal. All of the patients for all of the plan sponsors we serve will get your drug when appropriate. PBM loves this. They get 30 bucks a pop for all the scripts written, of course. And everybody wonders why some generic isn't on formulary at a PBM while an expensive brand is. I mean, think about this. And the reason is, isn't a mystery. The PBM makes a lot of money in rebates off of these expensive drugs, like 30 bucks, pa, honestly. Some of these drugs cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can imagine how much those rebates are. Also consider the so-called rebate walls. If we're talking about problems here, rebate walls prevent new, good, or less expensive drugs from entering the market without a ton of difficulty. I mean, say you're a manufacturer and you have a new product that's kind of inexpensive. You go to the PBM to try to get on formulary because that's pretty much the only way to get patients on your drug at scale nationally in this country. Most patients 
have insurance and they tend to use it. And most are on one of the big three PBMs. So if you're a little pharma and you approach the PBM, the PBM says, ha ha ha. Even if you, little pharma, give us a 40% rebate, you have no script volume. You could give us an 80% rebate. You got no scripts. We have this other drug with an exclusive with however many thousands or hundreds of thousands of patients taking it because exclusive. And also it's been on the market for however many years. Why would we upset that Brinks armored apple cart and not take the extra points from that first drug that they're paying for the exclusive in order to let your little drug on our formulary? There's a huge opportunity cost here for the PBM, as you might be able to see. Now, keep in mind, the patient with 20% coinsurance will pay 20% of $100, which was that original list price that we talked about before the rebate. They're not paying 20% of 80 or whatever the price was after the rebate. So yeah, you know, the PBM certainly making a couple bucks off the patient there. I keep talking about the PBM role here, but self-insured employers and Part D plans are not totally innocent. They get some or all of those PBM rebates back from the PBMs. And I've heard more than once how rebates are the opiates of health insurance. Plans take those rebate dollars and they use them to lower premiums. It's like the opposite of normal insurance, if you think about it. In normal insurance, the healthy or the people's homes who didn't burn down (laughs) subsidize the sick people or the people who had a fire. In the parallel universe of drug coverage, the sick subsidize the well. Rebates on the drugs sick people are taking and paying at the pharmacy counter for, those rebates are used to lower everybody's monthly payments. So the plans are addicted to this money because plans have a couple of strategic reasons why they want to keep premiums down. But here's the thing, plan sponsors, you could also just pay a fair price for the drugs to begin with. You could also just make sure that the right people are taking the right drugs. You could contemplate the total cost of care in your negotiations or the value of the drug like they do in every other developed country. I keep seeing over and over again case studies where plans save literally 30% or more on their drug spend by foregoing this whole rebate fandango and going with a PBM that don't play those reindeer games. And patients do better because they're on the right medications. My guest today, Pramod John, is the founder and CEO over at Vivio Health. Vivio contracts with self-insured employers and helps employers slash members slash patients get the right drug. They actually expand access and the employer saves money. Last week's show, episode 352, was also with Promote John, and we talk about how not all drugs work for all people who take them. In fact, most drugs don't work for people who take them. And there's side effects that might be more common than the drug actually working. You don't have to listen to these two shows in order, so feel free to proceed no matter what. I just recommend going back and listening to episode 352 as well because the info there really brings home the points that you'll hear today. I will mention one thing from the other show, though. Promote and I had kind of a riff about how if you tell patients that a drug only works in 2% of patients, most will assume that they'll be one of those two special patients out of the 100 that the drug will work for. But if you tell most patients that two patients out of 100 will die as a result of taking those drugs, those same patients will assume that they will not be the two that that drug kills. So there's this weird psychology going on here that gets even weirder when you realize that some of the drugs the FDA approved on accelerated approval, it turns out don't work at all for nobody. 
They do still have horrible side effects, however, that's a sure thing. But there's like no chance that the drug will improve, for example, survival time based on all of the data while the drug is on market. And you'll still get patients and doctors writing that drug. Is it conflict of interest, question mark? Is it this whole we want to give people slash patients hope thing? Is it the placebo effect? More on this topic in my interview with Bishal Gowali, MD, episode 289, and also Vincent Rajkumar, MD, episode 296. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Promote John. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be back on the show. Let me ask you this, Promote. How does efficacy or effectiveness of the drug intersect with that whole rebate situation going on right now? Rebates have been called the opium of the insurance system. I heard someone call the other day. You know, you have these plan sponsors who are demanding rebates, but that whole addiction to rebates is, let's just say, not conducive to some of the things that you're talking about. Because like, if I'm a plan sponsor trying to maximize rebates, do I really care? about the efficacy or effectiveness of the drug potentially, especially if I'm a little naive and a little distant from the whole totality of impact or the pharma benefit is siloed from the medical benefit. So like, I don't even necessarily have any mechanism by which to put those two things together. If you've got a plan sponsor who mainly cares about getting the most drugs prescribed that have the highest rebate sort of period end of story, then efficacy or effectiveness of the drug is almost counterintuitive to what they're trying to achieve. When you brought up this whole question of purchasers, there's a feeling that, look, this is all pharma and the supply chain and the PBMs and everybody else. And the purchasers have no sort of responsibility for where we end up today. I think that often we put the purchasers into the bucket of, hey, they really want to change the way the system works, but they don't have the power to do anything. And I would flip that and say, look, if Purchasers in this country keep purchasing stuff when it isn't cost effective. It's sort of like saying, hey, the purchasers in America are fine with paying Ferrari prices for Hondas. As long as purchasers don't care and keep paying Ferrari prices for Hondas, what do you think is going to happen to the price of Hondas? They will become as expensive as Ferraris. Right? And worse, we won't be able to tell the difference between the Ferrari and the Honda anymore because we're saying that, look, even if it's a Ferrari or it's a Honda, it doesn't matter. We'll pay you the same. And as a result, we end up with crappy drugs on the market that don't really move the dial. And we just end up with more and more and more of those on the market. Let's take that a step further because guess what? The question that you just asked about rebates falls into exactly the same category yet again. And it has nothing to do with the question of, is this the right therapy for the individual? You brought up another point. If you think about, let's assume in a perfect world that a formulary could work. Well, in that case, the assumption for a formulary to work would be that it doesn't matter whether you're on drug A or B. It's just an economic question because you're going to respond equally to both. What do we just spend most of our time talking about? The fact that different people respond to drugs differently. And even the assumption that we've made that, hey, drug A and B are just the same. It makes no difference at all. In real life, we know that that's not true. We know that different people respond to drug A generally compared to drug B. So even the fundamental assumption we're making about the model in which these rebates work is that, in fact, 
negated by the science and the data behind these drugs. Yeah, indeed. Bob Matthews, who was on the show earlier, created this gigantic algorithm. It is monstrous, which aligns hypertensive products to patients. And they have outstanding results, uh, which I think validates exactly what you're you're saying. If you put the right patient on the right drug, you, you get far better outcomes. But generally speaking, if we think about this in terms of formularies or therapeutic classes or whatever, all of those hypertensives are all smacked in one category. And if I was a very aggressive builder of formularies, I would only have one or two of that set of eight or nine therapeutics. But the point that you're making is you actually need <laughs> the eight or nine or whatever, because you're going to have different people that respond to different drugs. That raises another interesting point, which is that in that world, you have increased access, meaning that, yeah, there's this drug that's, you know, three times more expensive than the baseline drug that works for most people. Well, there are only a few people who need it. And so the people who need it have access to that. That doesn't mean that everybody needs access or needs that drug. That means some people do. Here's the beauty of that. People have access to the drug that works for them, number one. But then you're like, but does that increase cost? No. We've shown and other people have shown that that actually decreases cost across the population. Not increases, it decreases cost when people have access to the drugs they need, but they're on the right drug. And it also increases competition because it says for the first time, anyone is free to compete with a better drug. And if you have a better drug that costs less, well, then you can take the market just like you can in the rest of our lives when somebody comes up with a better product and charges less. Of course, we, we get into that with all of the supply chain disincentives relative to what you're you're talking about. One of the things that I heard about your work, Promote, that I thought was absolutely fascinating is you did some research and found that in a certain drug category, like the drugs were 2% effective or something like that at the cost of literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Look, a lot of this data is available. In our case too, if you go back and ask, are we dealing with secret data? that we've somehow magically made up. And we're like, no, this is about science and it's about published data and facts. And unfortunately, when you go back and ask the question around the published data and facts, you often find things like you just described. You're like, 2% efficacy. Well, 2% efficacy is significantly higher than 0% efficacy, right? In the last year alone, the folks on our team, along with others, have identified literally under a dozen drugs that have accelerated approvals for which this year alone, the folks on our team went back and looked at the confirmatory studies and other things and found that the drugs showed no benefit whatsoever. And so this whole issue of even 2%, imagine a world in which we're looking at 2% and saying, wow, that's actually good compared to zero. And we keep prescribing these drugs. So here's a kicker for you. This year alone, there have been several drugs, mostly accelerated approvals in the oncology space, many drugs that have been shown to have no benefit whatsoever. Several were pulled by the FDA. Here's a kicker. We've already spent in the public sector alone hundreds of millions of dollars just in Medicare, not including commercial, on those drugs that have been proven to have no benefit, zero, none whatsoever. And we're not asking the question of, how could we be paying for drugs that have been shown to not work and not only pay? And look, if these were a couple bucks, no one would care. We've paid hundreds of millions of dollars just in the public sector alone. And so the answer to your question of how do you fix that? Stop paying for them. 
that's the way that you fix that. Dr. Bashal Gawali was was on the show last year kind of saying the same thing, that the whole point of these accelerated approvals was that someone would then go back and actually look at all of the data. So, okay, great, that happens. And it showed that potentially these drugs didn't meet the endpoints that had been hypothesized under which they got the accelerated approval. So now what, right? So Bashal is one of the folks on our team. If you were to think about our work in the market, it's to say that we can take research like for example, Bashal's work and others in academia and other spaces and bring that work to market. There's nothing preventing us from doing that. And so the answer to your question is, well, you know, like you, you had Bashal on, on the show. It's like, what prevents you from taking that information and using it? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing prevents you from taking that information and using it. That's what we do today. You're saying the same thing that Paul Sims said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. The idea that's a counterpoint to the pharma trade group's typical promotional message, lobbying message that they put out there, which is basically spend more money, get more innovation. And I think both of you are are sort of saying the same thing, which is actually that Maybe true up to a point, but above that, it actually winds up curbing innovation that is meaningful because if I don't actually have to produce an actual result, then it's cheaper to put whatever out there as opposed to really working on things that are highly beneficial and being held to that benchmark. Well, let's assume that pharma's argument was true. Basically, that more dollars Americans spend funnels research, blah, blah, blah. Now, in reality, if you were to ask the question, is that true? If you go back just recently, one of the House committees actually did a study over the last three years and found that most of the money that pharma is making has been gone to do stock buybacks because of market conditions. What's your advice to employers then? Like very tactically here, we have a situation Let me just tick off a couple of things in our situation analysis, and then I'm going to ask you, what should I do? I'm an employer. I know not all drugs work for all people, right? Like there's going to be good responders. There's going to be not so good responders on on this continuum. So I I know that. And as you said, a lot of this information is publicly available. So you can get someone who is an expert in, in such things. These individuals are out there. You run Vivio, so you know this very well, right? Like I could hire somebody to say this only works for however many people, right? Like I should know the efficacy as well as the effectiveness. I also know that some drugs are very expensive. I also know that to a certain extent, my plan premiums are dependent on rebates. Like that is not something that I think we can overlook here. Like that is a thing, this addiction to rebates and just how much those rebates the plan sponsors rely on. That is a reality. And then we also have these certain middle people that are inside the supply chain. So you take all of those things together. If you were having coffee with an employer, what would you tell them to do? I tell them that a couple things, right? One is to ask the question, just like we would for everything else, which is where's the money to be made or saved? And the reason why I ask that question is that remember where the money to be saved is where the money is to be made for somebody else. And we talk about things like cost benefit. Remember cost benefit is just a question of, well, who's the cost and who's the benefit for? And I think often we, we tend to forget that, look, the benefit and the reason why we offer, we pay for benefits is for the benefit of the people that we represent, the employees and their families. The two ways that we benefit them are to make sure that 
the cost of health care is as low as it can be for every employee in the company, and that the employees who need the health care get the best outcome that they can at the level of an individual. Today, the really simple question that everybody should be asking themselves is, is what we're doing guaranteeing that every individual actually gets data-driven care? And the counter question of, and does that mean that every other individual in the company who pays premiums and other things is paying the lowest cost possible? If you're not getting that, then your model doesn't achieve why it even exists. I mean, ask yourself, why do you even pay for healthcare? At some point, you've got to be able to answer that question. Is every one of my members getting the right care at the best cost to every other member within the organization? What you're saying there, including both the patient taking the drug and the everybody else in the equation is important, I think, due to the current goings on where the patient who is paying a co-insurance for a really expensive drug and the plan collecting all or part of the rebate on that same expensive drug, those two revenue sources are lowering the premiums for everybody else in the plan. If I was that employer that was having coffee with you, I think where my head would first go is, you know, a lot of times one of the reasons why employers offer health benefits is talent acquisition and, and retention. Many employers feel like having great health benefits is, is a way to attract and keep good employees or top talent. So what I would be concerned about is this friction point that my health plan didn't cover said drug, which the analysis and the evidence base shows isn't great to begin with, right? So I'm going to be like, we're not covering that or we're only covering it with a gigantic prior auth or however you limit the utilization. And then you get this whole, well, you know, my plan denied that, it's rationing, this is terrible healthcare, because based on what we were talking about earlier, everybody thinks they're going to be one of the special ones who's going to get all the benefit with no side effects. Do you have any sage advice or anything to offer relative to how you overcome that sort of basic human tendency? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because obviously all of us feel at the level of being individuals. This is one of those things that's a tough one because imagine you're a benefits manager. You're sitting in the seat of wanting to offer a benefit. You want to do the right thing for the membership, but you generally tend to hear from the people who are unhappy. And so you also tend to skew decisions based on who do you hear from. And sometimes those two things are not correlated the who you hear from versus what's the benefit for my population. Let me expand on what that means. In the area of healthcare, we see that healthcare is almost always Pareto or steeper in distribution, meaning that a very small number of people spend most of the dollars. To tell you, to give you an idea of how crazy that is, if you took one of the largest employers in the United States today and you took their population, you'd find that today about one and a half percent of the population spends over 60 percent of all dollars that are spent on drugs because those are the specialty drugs that are used by fewer and fewer people. So what you're finding is all the dollars are being concentrated into fewer and fewer and fewer people. So here's the problem. When that one person in a company, you decide that, hey, you know what? We really don't care whether there's any data. We really don't care whether this actually works for the person or not. We want the person to get whatever therapy it is, whether it works or it doesn't. 
The problem in now, in today's society, when you think about sort of where the economics flow, is that the 49 people sitting next to that one person end up paying for that person's care. But remember, they're not calling. As a result, we don't hear from them. We just know that their premiums all went up. And so for us to really be fair and start thinking about the population, start thinking about every employee, then we've got to answer the question of, but what about the 49 employees who didn't call who paid for that one employee? Should we do the right thing for them? And what's the right thing for them? Considering that it's a pretty well-known fact these days that consumers don't shop, they just abandon care. (laughs) If the price is perceived to be too high, there actually is negative health consequences. So we're paying a lot for this one individual who may not be helped, but we may be diminishing the health outcomes of everybody else who now is, is paying for the one person who's not getting any benefit. And those 49 people have a diminished health, right? Because they can't afford their deductible and are not getting their diabetic eye exam or something, which is quite prevalent. Well, I mean, if, if to a case in point of what you just described is the analysis that's been done on high deductible plans. Because in general, what you find is exactly what you're describing. The people who are low risk spend less and they even avoid the care they should be getting. And then the people who are high risk, which are the ones who always hit their deductible, the high flyers in healthcare, who are already spending most of the money, they continue to spend even more. And so it completely has perverted the incentives when you think about how do we get every individual to the actual care that they need, which is the goal. Yeah, I think my big takeaway here, Pramod, is that a lot of this is going to require, for this to work, is going to require physicians, provider organizations, taking the time to do shared decision-making with patients, and then also taking the time to really and truly evaluate the efficacy and effectiveness of, of the medications. Because I think if you have physicians that are just sort of prescribing, then it comes down to the patient and the plan to kind of get in the middle of the intimate patient-physician relationship in ways that probably don't serve anybody, right? But like, it, it almost feels like the patients are being asked to make decisions absent information and then the plan gets stuck being the cops, right? Like in the middle there when... We have physicians with their own incentives. Don't get me wrong. You know, like there's the whole, which we're not talking about today, part B, infusions, 340B, right? Like there's that whole thing going on on that side of the house as well. But if we have physicians who are not really making decisions that take into account the NNT and the NNH, then we're going to just continue with this situation. Yeah, you know, you bring up a really good point, which is that does anybody want to be a traffic cop? in this case? And the answer to that is no. If you're asking the question, but why are we having this conversation? And why are why is someone forced to play the traffic cop piece, if you will? And it's because, as you just brought up, the financial incentives are aligned around a four trillion, you know, when I started, what was the two and a half trillion dollar industry that was the fifth largest equivalent of the fifth largest GDP in the world now growing to a four trillion dollar industry. And you're like, why? Well, because everybody's palms are greased along the way. So if you're asking the question, should the primary prescriber be the one who has an obligation to do the best thing from a cost effectiveness perspective? Of course, the answer to that is yes. The first thing that would start is for physicians to say that I'm going to do the thing that's driven by the data and the, and the actual and the actual data on cost and benefit, not because of the way 
the you know things are done today or how my hospital reimburses me or how I make more money. But that's where it would start. Promote, is there anything I neglected to ask you that you want to summarize or mention? The only thing that I'd say is that in my own life, you know, I've often found that we all make assumptions about how things work. And a lot of times we make assumptions because of what we hear from, quote unquote, the experts. And if there's one thing that we've learned from this COVID experience, having experts with wildly varying views, is that we need to be able to separate the beliefs of experts from the facts. We've sort of stopped caring about the facts. And data-driven and evidence-based medicine is all about facts, not about your opinion or my opinion or anyone else's opinion for that matter. Do you want to just talk a little bit about Vivio and what you're up to there? Thank you for asking. Our focus is really on, well, how would you solve this problem if you were to step back and say, look, I don't want to build a better health plan, a better PBM, a better whatever. We're to go back and ask the question of how do we get the best drug and the data in the most cost-effective way to every single member and patient and be able to answer the question of, is this person getting the most cost-effective outcome? Isn't that the question that we're trying to answer for every individual? So we built a model that said, look, we're going to start with that question for every single person to get cost-effective outcome, and we're going to work backwards. And so we built a model that basically allows us to do that because that is the fundamental question that we care about. It's decreased costs drastically. We have customers that have carved specialty drugs out of all the major PBMs, a lot of the health plans. And across our book of business last year, we saw better care no restrictions on access, very counterintuitive, no formulary, but the costs were about, on average, about 40% less than what they were paying in prior years with the big PBMs. Our whole goal is to say, look, this is all about data. And if we could use that data and build an economic model in which no one benefits from people being on the wrong drugs or more expensive drugs or drug prices going up, we can build a better system. And that's what we do every day. And if someone is interested in learning more about Vivio, where would you direct them? Just go to our website, viviohealth.com, or email me, promote at viviohealth.com. Promote, John. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you very much again for having me. Really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you do in educating the public about these issues. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.